Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It can be rather awe-inspiring, intimidating even, to be in the presence of greatness. Time and time again, you've probably heard stories about people who've had the opportunity to meet someone who was famous or powerful or wealthy, and they found themselves in such a state of shock and fear that they were unable to speak. I've heard it said frequently that people have this sort of experience when they visit the White House, regardless of which president occupies the office, and irrespective of whether or not that individual agrees with the president and his governmental policies. The same thing sometimes happens around people like Warren Buffett or or Bill Gates or around Hollywood personalities or famous musicians. Now, even though these celebrities are human beings just like us, people can still get a little bit starstruck. Even though all that these people have accomplished in their lives is fast fleeting and will fade away with the sands of time, we still realize that there's something unique and special about the work in their lives and what they've accomplished. This past Friday night, we were eating dinner at a restaurant and they had one of their televisions turned to a Little League game, of all things, on one of the ESPN channels. Now, it was a regional final game that would determine which of these two young teams would advance on to the Little League World Series. I found that particularly interesting because 40 years ago this summer, my Little League team won the state championship, and then the sectionals, and we also got as far as these regional finals the same level that these teams were playing in on TV Friday night. Now, my team fell one game short of going to the Little League World Series, but it was a great experience even so. I still communicate occasionally with some of my teammates from that summer by email or on Facebook. One of the great memories that I have of that particular summer is something that happened a few weeks after we got pretty well clobbered and eliminated from the tournament. You see, every year in the late summer, the Detroit Tigers would hold Champions Day at the old Tiger Stadium. They'd invite teams from all over Michigan and even from Northwest Ohio that had won various championships to come to the game for free. The Tigers would announce these teams' names over the public address system at the ballpark. Little League, Pony League, high school teams, Connie Mack, American Legion, college teams, and so on. It was a fun and glorious day walking through the tunnel of the stands and out to see that emerald green grass on the field. What made that day especially and particularly memorable for our team was getting to do something that none of the other teams did. You see, my dad had a few friends in the Tiger organization. In later years, he even did a little part-time scouting for them. What he did that day, however, left me speechless, literally. He told our coaches to bring our team of 12-year-olds down to the concourse outside of the visitor's locker room. Now, the visiting team that day was the old Washington Senators. We didn't know why we should be waiting outside the Senators' clubhouse. 
Now, we knew the names of some of the Washington players, of course, but we were all Tiger fans, and we would have preferred to see Tiger players, not someone from the Senators. A few minutes later, though, a tall, powerful man with a, a leathery tan and the biggest hands I had ever seen in my life emerged from the Senator's locker room wearing his uniform. He had lots of gray hair among his brown locks, so he was obviously too old to be a player. Who was this, we wondered for a moment. He had to be a coach or the manager. It wasn't until he spoke in a loud baritone voice that we started to put two and two together. The larger-than-life character that loomed over us was none other than Ted Williams, perhaps one of the greatest hitters in the history of baseball. What started out with a little curiosity for us and had moved through doubt and skepticism soon gave way to intense wonder. Ted Williams is the last man to hit 400 in the major leagues, an incredibly difficult feat. It's never been done since, and that happened back in the early 40s. He still ranks in the top of many of the hitting categories, despite, despite missing several seasons of his career as he served as a combat fighter pilot in both the Second World War and again in Korea. When he asked us a few questions about baseball and about our team, most of us could only stammer unintelligible answers or simply stand there and nod with our mouths wide open. Such is the awe that comes when we are in the presence of the great and the powerful. Now, if we sometimes have that sort of reaction when we come face to face with other human beings, fallen sinners as we are in spite of what they might have accomplished in this life, how much more should we stand in awe at the presence of Him who is created and who governs all things? The fact is, though, that both Christians and unbelievers alike have a variety of reactions of being in the presence of Almighty God. Not all of these reactions are appropriate or healthy. Sometimes these reactions are dependent upon how God manifests Himself to us. When God comes revealing a, a great deal of His power and glory, people are rightly intimidated. Our human reactions will also be governed by how self-aware we are, how honest we are about who we are and what we are. When we are fully aware of our sinfulness, our weakness, our complete dependence upon God for creation, for life, for the sustaining of it, we can feel very insignificant and fearful. When these two factors come together, though, it can be truly frightening. For some, this triggers a false bravado in which we can become belligerent with God. Witness, however, the reactions of Adam in the garden after the fall, of Moses on the mountain with the burning bush, of the people of Israel when God revealed His power in the cloud on the mountain, of Isaiah when he had seen the Lord in His temple on the throne, and of the mob and the soldiers in Gethsemane when they sought to arrest Jesus and He revealed to them that He is the great I Am. These reactions are right and true for those who are confronted by the Lord in their state of sin. We too should be fearful and high to remove our sandals, to cry, woe is me, I am lost, and to draw back in fear and fall to the ground. A world that doesn't believe in any God has no such reaction at all, for it doesn't recognize the Lord as holy and powerful. 
Yet even among many world religions, there are those who view their gods as being little more than a creative spiritual power to be respected but not truly feared, and certainly not as omnipotent or as just rulers. Others wishfully imagine gods who are so benevolent, so full of love that no accountability exists for either what they do or for what they believe. Even among Christians, though, there has been a decline in the sense of awe and the high regard in which God is held. Instead of giving honor and praise and glory to Him in our utmost, too often we offer Him our moldy leftovers instead of our first fruits. We scratch out a little time for Him occasionally instead of making Him the focus of our lives. We give Him half-hearted effort instead of devoting the fullness of our talents and our energies to His kingdom. Isaiah was overcome with fear and awe at the sight of God in his dwelling place. The revelation of God's holy presence in his house was cause for alarm until the Lord caused Isaiah's sin to be taken away. It should be the same for us, but it's much harder for us to experience that same sense of awe and fear because we often don't perceive God's presence and God's work in the same vivid way that Isaiah did. For this reason, our prayers and our praise don't seem to inspire or motivate us to the degree that some people would like to experience. Feeling that their faith is therefore somehow inadequate, they embark on an endless journey for a, a deeper, a more genuine spirituality. But this really only satisfies their minds and their flesh, and it does so only with empty and with shallow things. Contrast that with the prayer and the praise offered by Mary, the mother of our Lord, whose feast we commemorate this day. Yes, the role of Mary in the plan of salvation has been much abused and taken to extremes in both directions within the Christian church. It runs the gamut from virtual cult-like devotion and even deification of her as co-redeemer and grantor of grace on one end of the spectrum, to shrieking in a panic search for escape at the mere mention of her name on the other end. Let's be clear, however. True Christians worship the triune God alone, the God revealed to us in the Scriptures in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. We give no such worship and no such dignity to any fellow creature or anything of creation. Yet to ignore the role of Mary in God's plan of salvation is to do violence to the Word of God. We can no more throw Mary out of the Bible and ignore her than we can get rid of Adam or Noah or Abraham, Moses, David, John the Baptist, Peter, or Paul. The lives and the actions of each and every one of these, and more, are recorded for us in the inspired Word of God, so that we might come to saving faith in Him who is the offspring of Mary and of God Himself, the babe of Bethlehem, the prophet of Nazareth, the crucified of Calvary, the firstborn of the grave who now sits at the right hand of His Almighty Father. Now we can sit here today in our postmodern skepticism and say, well, yes, of course it was easy for Mary to be confident in her faith, and to praise God for her pregnancy and for all of the blessings God had revealed would come to her and to the world through her child. After all, she had been spoken to directly by God through His messenger Gabriel. 
She even had tangible physical contact with God by bearing His body within her. Really? Did that make it easy for Mary? Living in a culture in which mothers who conceived children out of wedlock often had their pregnancies as well as their very lives terminated by a harsh barrage of rocks? Having, not having fatherless motherhood celebrated as it is in our day? Not having public support and even governmental approval to conveniently duck accountability for an inconvenient child? I think not. It wasn't Mary's amazement at the angel's appearance or wonder at the miracle of her conception that gave Mary faith or led her to that song of faithful praise that we call the Magnificat. As we see throughout the Scriptures, miracles do not universally create faith. The Sinai desert was littered with the bodies of millions of Israelites who had witnessed the plagues of Egypt and had seen the Red Sea part before them. The same generation that saw Mary's son heal the blind, the lame, the deaf, and the demon-possessed didn't raise a hand to save him. No, miracles don't generate faith because faith itself is a miracle, a wondrous and a powerful blessing of God that comes upon those to whom He will bestow it. It comes only through the Holy Spirit working through the Word to move hearts, first to fear and then to trust, and finally to love God above all things. That's what we see in the account of Mary. First, the messenger the angel has to acknowledge and confront her fear. Then she is given God's trustworthy promises. And finally, in the words of the Magnificat, we see her express her love for God in praise and thanksgiving. Mary's song is the church's song. And if it is the church's song, then it is your song. Precisely because Mary's story is the church's story is your story that God will come to dwell with you, His people. That within you, the Lord will accomplish miraculous things and will come to life and will through you will accomplish even greater things in your life and in the lives of all those who are confronted by the reality of His presence. Yes, Mary's experience with God is unique and special and perhaps seems a little more real than what we might experience in our relationship with God. For some, that makes Mary worthy of excessive devotion and can even infringe upon the true worship we owe to her son alone. For others, Mary's unique experience, like many of the other wondrous experiences recorded in the Bible, becomes an obstacle to their faith. They feel that something is lacking in their faith or in God's gifts to them. If they don't see miracles, if they don't feel their heart burning within them, if they don't give or receive healing, if they can't speak in tongues, if they just don't see God revealed in some special way, if they don't feel special in some unique way, then their faith is somehow not right or strong. But God is revealed to you in special ways. We just sometimes forget that what humans think is special means spectacular or impressive rather than God's way which can be simple and effective and necessary. 
you are no less receiving God's Word from His messenger when you hear the preaching of His Word than did Mary when the angel spoke to her. You, no less than Mary, have the Holy Spirit come upon you and overwhelm you when you are drowned in the waters of the font. You, no less than Mary, have the very body of the Son of God entering you and dwelling in your flesh when you receive His body and blood at His altar. Mary was God's chosen vessel to carry His incarnate Word to His birth and to nurture Him and to care for Him as a child. You, as a member of the one holy Christian and apostolic church, the very body of Christ, are likewise part of His chosen vessel to convey the same holy and life-giving Word to a world that desperately needs His nurture, His care, His forgiveness, and His salvation. His mercy extends to you and to all those who fear Him in this and in all generations. The Mighty One has done great things for you. Glorify your Lord and rejoice in God your Savior. Holy is His name, Jesus, Son of Mary, Son of God. Amen.